Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist this week with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. Hello, and coming up in the show this week, why mosquito repellents only work for a while? What brain scans on developing babies are revealing to scientists about the way the brain wires itself up? And a new drug to fight the flu. Plus, the world of animal super senses. We'll hear about bees that can detect electric fields around flowers and whether sharks really can smell a drop of blood from over a quarter of a mile away. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientists, email chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or find us on Facebook. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. And first, joining Ginny and me to take a look at the science news this week is David Weston from Cambridge Neuroscience. Hello, David. Hello. And uh, Bibi Camposeo from Chemistry World. That's the Royal Society of Chemistry's magazine. Hello, Bibi. Hello. Ginny, uh, let's kick off with you because you've been looking at the important issue of mosquitoes and how to get rid of them. Yes, well, this was a really interesting paper that suggests that mosquitoes might become less sensitive to a commonly used repellent known as DEET if you continually expose them to it. So DEET's been shown in various studies to repel 100% of mosquitoes. But this new study, which was published in PLOS One, suggests that if you expose the same mosquito to the chemical more than once, it temporarily reduces the insect's aversion to it. Oh, do they actually know why the mosquitoes should become less sensitive? Well... They suggest it might be to do with a process called sensory adaptation or a related phenomenon known as habituation. So this is something that occurs in humans as well. If you imagine walking into a room where there's a really powerful smell, maybe an overpowering room freshener or something, it can seem really strong at first. But after a little while of being in there, you notice the smell less and less. I had a few friends at university like that. It wasn't room freshener that sprung <laughs> to mind, though. But, uh, but yes, you, you definitely do get that sort of adaptation. You, you get used to the smell, don't you? Yeah, and there are two ways that can happen. It can either be sensory adaptations, your nose actually stopping responding to it quite so much, or it can be habituation, which is down to attention. Basically, if something's going on in the background and it's not very important, it's not going to affect your life, you stop paying attention to it. And they think that mosquitoes are pretty much doing the same thing. Well, that was was one suggestion as to why this might be the case. So they've been exposed to DEET. Nothing bad's happened. Next time, not really so interested in paying attention to it and staying away if it's getting in the way of a juicy meal. So how did we miss this effect to start with then? Why do you think that scientists didn't notice uh, that DEET has this effect? Do you think they just did the experiment once, showed that it was apparently really good because the first time they smelled it, loads of the mosquitoes went away and so they concluded, yep, brilliant insect repellent. That could be the case because the thing is this has to be the same individual mosquito being exposed to it more than once. Um, So if they'd just done studies before where they had, you know, put the mosquito in the tub with with an arm with some DEET on it and they hadn't bitten, 
then they go, okay, well, it works. Because you have to actually look at individual mosquitoes who were repelled the first time and then not repelled when they see it again. Which is not necessarily an intuitive thing to do, is it? Of course, the, the important issue here is that if a mosquito isn't repelled by DEET and you're putting your faith in DEET and that's a mosquito with malaria, then you could actually catch it. Yeah, and it also might lead us to think that other repellents aren't as good as DEET if they are tested in this way. So if a repellent is tested on the same batch of mosquitoes again and again, we may think it's less effective than it actually is because of this phenomenon. But also we're looking for it so we can make better repellents in future. Do the researchers also speculate about what will constitute a better repellent in future? Are we saying sort of rotate your repellents? So you have a sort of, uh, today's Monday and I will put on DEET and then at lunchtime I'll switch on to a comparator or something. Well, I think what would actually work better than that would be for different people in the same area to wear different repellents because they haven't actually looked at how long this effect lasts for. Um, I think they showed it lasts for a couple of hours, but it may well wear off after a day. So what would be really bad would be if a mosquito went up to you, you were wearing DEET so it didn't bite you, but then it came over to me. I'm also wearing DEET, but it bit me because it's already smelt it on you. I've got a better strategy. <laughs> I've just got my wife and she is the biggest magnet for mosquitoes. I've ever met and uh, they just go after her they leave me alone I never get bitten when I'm out with my wife it's the best incentive to go go nice places with my wife in tropical places just, <laughs> I, I'm totally immune thank you Ginny now uh, David um, you've been looking at the neuroscience literature this week what have you got for us? I have so I've got a paper that's been published in Science Translational Medicine which came out two days ago and as we know the brain is a very complex organ and it relies on expansive networks of cells that communicate with one another very quickly and really effectively. But what we don't really know is when do all of the cells necessarily join up with each other? So when does the process by which all of the brain cells actually link up with each other occur? And this group, uh, which is a group of scientists from the Wayne State University in Detroit, uh, have released this paper where they've shown that the connections in the brain are actually forming in the developing fetus. How do they do that in a baby that's inside its mother? Because one of the things about MRI, I mean, I had a, an fMRI scan to take part in a study. I volunteered. It, it's like going into a baked bean tin and then someone slamming a hammer against the outside of the tin, you know, very hard and very fast. The thing is, though, they bolted me down so I couldn't move. A baby is floating around in liquid inside its mother. How do you get around that then? Yeah, so this was one of the very big issues with the paper. So what they did was they put the pregnant mother into the fMRI scanner and they recorded about 10 minutes worth of scan data. And because of all of this movement of the fetus, they actually had to eliminate about 50% of the data from each of those samples. So what they end up with is so much reduced data compared to what they, they originally had. So it's essentially a process of attrition. So you're recording for a really long period of time, but actually you have to get rid of a lot of the data. So you just So you just record more in order to get around that yeah, problem. Yeah, you've just got to record quite a long period of time. And when they do this, what are they actually finding? So what they're finding is they've used this technique called MRI scanning, and this is a particular type of MRI scanning called functional MRI, and this basically measures the amount of brain activity that's occurring in particular regions of the brain. And what they've found is that between the second and third trimesters, so between 24 and 38 weeks into pregnancy, the brains of these fetuses are massively increasing the connections between the two hemispheres of the brain. So we know that the brain's essentially symmetrical, so we've got two hemispheres on each side. And there are a number of connections that are occurring throughout this process are massively increasing. If you look in 
developing animals, you find that certain bits of the brain tend to change their connectivity or their maturation at different rates. So animals are born with certain circuits already wired up. They're usually the ones they need for doing things like feeding or running away from predators. Do they see that sort of pattern emerging in these human babies or, or are there insights into certain developmental pathways that we hadn't appreciated previously thanks to this? So they've come up with some basic ideas about the kind of process through which the development occurs. So they found that towards the centre of the brain, the connections are being made earlier, and then this process kind of spreads from the centre outwards. And this is occurring further towards the back of the brain rather than the front. So initially it begins developing at the back. And they've made some assertions about sort of which functional regions are very important. But I think because this is the first paper that's demonstrated um, a functional MRI within utero, this is basically a, a technique kind of paper and it's trying to just increase the awareness of this technique and how we can use it in the future. So does it tell us anything about what a baby in utero might be aware of? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure that it can necessarily tell us at this stage. I think the technique is still limited by resolution. So we can see basic areas of where the brain is becoming activated but we don't have the type of resolution to be able to see very very specific areas and also there's a time issue as well so we um, we can record from areas within maybe two seconds after activation of that particular area so for very specific processes it's going to be very difficult to pin down exactly what's happening. We know that babies fixate and imprint on their mother's voices so they come out recognising their mum's voice don't they? I wonder if they imprint on an MRI scanner as a result of this. <laughs> quite a worry isn't it? Thanks David. Now Bibby, mice and alcohol the connection isn't immediately apparent what's this all about? <laughs> Right, there's a group of researchers, actually two groups in the in the US and China, they've been uh, working together to actually devise a method to encapsulate uh, enzymes um, in, a, in a polymer shell. And it sounds quite trivial, actually, when you say it like that. But basically, um, enzymes and their activity is quite an, an interesting area. And what happens in nature is that you, if you look at a cell, the enzymes are not there, just free to, to roam around within the cell. They are compartment, compartmentalized in organelles or they are, um, uh, you know, they appear as complexes in, in, within, the, 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 within the cell. And so so that all the little machines in a production line are congregated or aggregated in one place in the cell to do a certain task. Yes, definitely. And, and basically it is quite important that they, they are within that area. Uh, it stops their intermediates uh, diffusing away, and so actually it, affects the, it could potentially affect the eff efficiency. So the product of one enzyme, which is going to be fed into another, if those enzymes are floating around randomly all over the cell, the product has got to go and find the other enzyme before it can get worked on, whereas if you put them all in a production line and fix them in, in that relationship, it's much more efficient, the throughput. Yes, definitely. And, and that, that, that would be one of the, uh, the reasons why this, this happens. And the second one is that if any uh, toxic waste is produced during metabolism, there will be, cell, uh, there will be en enzymes within that uh, structure that are able to decompose it immediately without you know, letting the, the, the waste um, contaminate the cell. Oh, clever. So when you make something which is like a bad smell or the cellular equivalent, basically there's something to deal with it on site there and then, so it doesn't go anywhere and do damage in the meantime. Absolutely, yes. So, in a way, this explains why enzymes should be within within a compartment. Uh, so, these um, scientists have designed a, a way of making synthetic compartments or organelles. Um, 
they have uh, actually devised a very simple method, with, which basically means that you have to, first of all, identify an inhibitor, which basically adds, acts as a temporary block. Uh, they have then linked these inhibitors with a DNA strand, uh, and basically they call this an inhibitor DNA uh, scaffold. Uh, when you actually then put this scaffold with the enzyme, basically they bind specifically. So you get a, a enzyme complex. Ah, so you're getting a string of DNA with molecules bound onto the enzymes to hold onto them temporarily. So you end up with a string of enzymes linked by this bit of DNA scaffold. So that sort of puts everything in the right relationship. Yes, uh, in the in the right spatial arrangement as well, because uh, the, the way that they are arranged is is important. So then, how do you make the little compartment they're going to sit in? It actually it it generates itself as a cocoon over over the the, the complex. Uh, they functionalize the enzyme with uh, with groups, acryloyl groups, and basically they, these groups uh, find uh, a monomer that needs to be present present there, needs to be fed into the the mixture, uh, and uh, we also need an initiator and a cross linker. These are all components that you need for a for a polymer polymerization process, and it happens in situ. So basically, you've got your complex there. And you add a few elements that actually make a, they spin a cocoon around the, the, the complex. Okay. How does it actually then get used? Basically, you need to gently heat it a little bit to remove the DNA scaffold, and this activates the enzymes. Um, to test the efficacy of the um, of this complex, actually, what they did is they actually uh, made uh, mice very drunk. <laughs> they they I love were that wicked laugh. There. <laughs> <laughs> they made some mice drunk. Yes, yes, because they were actually testing enzymes that are involved in, in the metabolism of alcohol. So they had um, alcohol oxidase, which uh, oxidizes uh, ethanol into acetaldehyde and hydrogen peroxide. And hydrogen peroxide is uh, is toxic for for um, for the cell. So basically, they put there another enzyme, which is catalase, that breaks down the peroxide into water and oxygen. So what they did is actually they uh, administered this uh, enzyme complex to one of the cohorts of, of mice, and the other one was obviously untreated. Uh, they made them very, very, very drunk. <laughs> actually, it's really interesting when you read the paper because they fell asleep within minutes. <laughs> okay, so that's pretty drunk. That's yes. almost sort of student... Uh, Freshers' night drunk, isn't it? <laughs> yes. So then they what administer these particles to the mice? Do they no, the they, enzyme particles? They, they administer the um, the drug before the the alcohol, uh, and basically what happens is that they fell asleep very quickly. And the ones that had been treated with the uh, with the chemical, they recover a lot quicker. Actually, one to two hours, uh, they they wake up one to two hours before the rest that you know who are still completely drunk. <laughs> but David's waving his hand. Does that mean you're sort of eager to try this, David? No, or he? <laughs> I'm eager to know whether this is going to lead to a good hangover cure for humans. Is there any any way that we could perhaps get this for humans? Or yes, that's that's one of the the aims. Actually, they want to to test it as a prophylactic for you know alcohol uh, addiction. Uh, so you'll have to wait a little while, though, David. Okay, so um, <laughs> maybe till the show's over. <laughs> There's also quite an interesting study. This week, this is in the Journal of Science, Stephen Withers, who's a researcher at the University of British Columbia, he and his colleagues have published an, a new type of agent to tackle flu. Now, most people have heard of Tamiflu, which is O-cell Tamivir. There's also a related molecule called Relenza. That's the trade name. It's actually generically Zanamivir. And these compounds 
traditionally that we use, target an enzyme system called neuraminidase. And this is a structure on the surface of flu which cuts a sticky molecule on the surfaces of cells called sialic acid. And the virus needs to cut that molecule because when a cell is made more flu, the flu particles come out of the cell they've infected and then they get lodged in the sialic acid. And the neuraminidase snips it out of the way and the virus goes off and infects other cells. So using drugs like Tamiflu to block up this neuraminidase on the surface of the virus is quite an effective way to inhibit flu. The problem is that the virus very quickly mutates and changes so that the virus no longer can be bound by the drug and as a result it can grow even when the drug is there. So what Stephen Withers and his colleagues said was what about if we make a drug based on the, the molecule that the neuraminidase is trying to cut the sialic acid. In other words, a, a molecule which is so closely related to the sialic acid that if the virus tries to mutate so it can no longer recognise the drug, it will also no longer recognise the sialic acid. So either way, it's going to be disabled. So they've made these molecules called difluorosialic acid. So they add two fluorines onto the sialic acid molecule and they add a few other bits and pieces on as well. They've made this little family of compounds and they, they present this extraordinary series of experiments where they try them on enzymes in the dish to start with and they show the enzymes are powerfully inhibited, the neuraminidases, by these agents. Then they grow cells in the dish and add these molecules and they show not only are they safe, they don't seem to be toxic to the cells, they really powerfully inhibit the virus growth in the cells. And then they administer them to mice that are given lethal doses of flu and 100% of the mice are saved by these agents with no obvious ill effect and the really big news I think is that they even tested strains of the virus which are uh, resistant to Tamiflu at the moment and these drugs are really effective so not only have we got potentially a new compound to, to try to develop now we've also got a compound which uh, it will be very much more difficult for the virus to mutate around so that it can't uh, so easily become resistant which I think is extraordinary. Yeah, that sounds incredible. So how long until something like this might be on our shelves, might be able to help us? Hmm, good point. Well, you know, <laughs> you know, as everyone knows, um, the so-called test tube to needle time for most nascent agents, you know, you're talking 10 years, aren't you, um, on average? And the, the time it normally takes being 10 years, that means the price tag's pretty high, anything up to 10 billion usually because of all the regulation and trials and things. So it's not going to be tomorrow, but they say, I mean, in the paper, they say the similarity of these new drug molecules to the molecules that are already present in the body makes them, in inverted quotes, commas, attractive antiviral candidates. So hopefully there we go. Jenny, tell us about... Um, Wasps. Well, I've also got a story about alcohol today. It seems like there's a bit of a theme. Um, but this one's to do with fruit flies and wasps. So there's a kind of wasp that likes to lay its eggs inside the larvae of fruit flies. And then these wasps hatch and basically eat their way out from the inside. So if you're a fruit fly, you really want to avoid these wasps, avoid getting affected by them. And the larvae have actually learnt to eat alcoholic fruit because they can handle their booze better than the wasps can. So they kill off the wasp parasites inside them before the alcohol starts damaging themselves. Self-medication. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that's but already known, wasn't it? That was already known. But this study by um, Kakosh from Emory University and his colleagues have shown that when these parasitic wasps are around, the adult fruit flies lay their eggs in alcohol-rich food sources so they're actually giving their offspring the best chance of being able to self-medicate by making sure that as soon as they hatch, they've got the alcohol around. Now, you say when the wasps are around. So are you saying the flies know when, when there's a parasitic wasp around? 
Yes, oh. they recognise them. Um, and it's through vision, actually. The researchers tested a couple of different kinds of... The fly can recognise a wasp? They can. And not only can they recognise a wasp, but they can recognise that it's a female wasp because, of course, only females lay eggs, so the males aren't going to be a, a problem. They can recognise that it's the kind of wasp that lays eggs in their larvae rather than there's another kind of wasp that lays eggs in the pupae. So the reason that they there's a difference there is because when the larvae hatch, they'll eat the food they're on, but then they'll wander off and start eating other food before they pupate. So laying your eggs in alcoholic food when there's a wasp that only affects your pupae around wouldn't really help them. So my, my question is, how do the flies know if the food is alcoholic or not? How can they decide whether... To, how, how do they know whether the food has alcohol in or whether it's, it's food that's not going to necessarily give them this advantage? Um, well... Alcohol exists naturally in the world when when fruits ferment, mm. and it usually gives off quite an a, quite a smell. And you can, t- I mean, you can probably taste if there's. <laughs> I like the way alcohol. she says you can probably tell, like <laughs> you know, some probably. kind of closet I'm alcoholic. Sure if, if I tried to slip you some vodka into your water, I think I you could probably yeah. tell. Okay. So I guess it's in a similar way to mm. that. Um, so they gave them a choice of two options to lay their eggs in, one that had alcohol and one that didn't. When there were no wasps, they prefer the non-alcoholic version because actually their larvae aren't that good at drinking. The the alcohol does affect still, them. There's still a cost associated. Yeah, it's better is. not to have the booze, but if, but if it's a flies, question of wasp... Yeah parasitism or booze you go for the least of the two evils which is the booze exactly and what was really fascinating was that after seeing a wasp the flies continue laying in the alcoholic substance for four days after the wasps have been removed so they're remembering that they've seen a wasp and carrying on changing their laying habits for several days afterwards so it's a case of once bitten twice smitten maybe i don't know (laughs) yeah well um, these flies obviously have a, a better memory than we thought they did Extraordinary story. Thank you very much, Ginny. And also thank you to David Weston from Chemistry Neuroscience and Bibi Campasejo from Chemistry World, where she's the editor. You can find out more about Chemistry World on the web at chemistryworld.org. You can actually find the references and uh, transcripts of the stories we've been discussing as well in our news section on our website at nakedscientist.com slash news. This is The Naked Scientist with Ginny Smith and with me, Chris Smith. And if you'd like to get in touch with any questions or comments, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientist or you can find us on Facebook. Later in the show, we'll be taking a look at animal super senses. We've long known that many animals, such as hammerhead sharks and platypus, have been found to be able to read the electric field of their prey. But new research out this week suggests that bees might also be able to sense electric fields around flowers. To find out more, we're joined by Daniel Roberts, who's the Professor of Bio-Nanoscience at Bristol University. Hello, Daniel. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. So, first of all, what did you do this for? Why, why were you going looking at bees and electric fields? It may sound a bit bizarre at first, indeed. Um, bizarre. We, yeah, indeed. yeah, bizarre, sorry. We, the, the, the idea was um, to first look at um, adhesion in pollen grains because we were interested in the, in the travel of a, of a pollen grain from a flower to a bee and uh, the fact that it has to stick to a bee. And then uh, when the bee visits another flower, that pollen grain has to jump from that bee to, to, uh, to the next flower for pollination to, to take place. So we, we started with that and soon realized that electricity or electric fields, electrostatics, was actually very important in the life of, um, of that pollen. 
in the transport of that pollen. But it soon became apparent that um, this electricity was not just uh, because the pollen had a charge on it, but that was also because the bee, as it approaches a flower, carries, uh, carries a charge. So then you said, right, well, the bee's got a charge. Yeah. So the flower also has a charge. So is the bee going to be sensitive to that? So as a sensory biologist, at first, uh, my, my question was immediately, can, uh, can the bee pick that up? Does the bee know that there is a charge difference or a potential difference between herself and the flower? So it was known from the literature that bees carry a positive charge as they move across the air. So Is that just up. because the bees are rubbing against air molecules as they fly? That's correct, yes, because the air is ionised uh, very often, except for when there is a lot of water that cancels out a bit the, the, uh, the ionisation. But when the air is sufficiently dry, um, airplanes or helicopters also have the same effect. They, they charge up as they, as they move through the air. Do bees get an electric shock when they land? No, they don't, because they don't accumulate that much. They can accumulate a, a charge equivalent to 100 or 200 volts or so, not thousands of volts, uh, as, as airplanes or, or even themselves can accumulate when we, we walk on uh, static carpets, for instance. So what happens when this bee, with its net positive charge, approaches a flower then? Yes, well, the, the important bit in that is that the bee is, is in the air, so it's not earth to anything, so it carries a charge by itself, so it's kind of a little bundle of, uh, of positive charges. And uh, it approaches the flower, which is itself then linked to the, to the ground. It's earthed. And because flowers are mostly made of water, and water is a conductor, uh, flowers will tend to, uh, to be at the potential or at the type of level of electricity, if you want, that is uh, on the earth. So... As the bee approaches with a positive charge, the flower is relatively negative to it, so there will be uh, an effect where plus and minus will generate an electric field in between the, these, two, these two objects. So as the bee approaches, even without touching the flower, <clears throat> there is a, a force being developed there. Does it matter whether it's a flower or other bits of the plant? Because, after all, petals are just modified leaves, aren't they? That's correct, yes. We haven't looked at petals necessarily uh, so far, but uh, your question is, is, is right. There is no reason to think that petals might not be at the same, have the same, uh, the same effect. So what effect do you think this has on the bee? So what we, uh, we could show is that bees can learn the presence or the absence of this charge difference uh, in the flower. So we, we, we designed a, a learning experiment for bees in, a, in the lab, for bumblebees, in which we presented artificial flowers, which uh, were all of the same color and all had little uh, pads underneath, electric pads, in order to test whether the bee could tell whether there was a charge or not. And uh, what we did, uh, we repeated experiments that people did before in, in, in studying, learning about bees, is that we reproduce uh, some flowers that have um, sugar and some flowers that have quinine. So bees like sugar and they don't like quinine. So um, <clears throat> on some of the, of the flowers that had, uh, so on the flowers that had uh, sugar, we put uh, uh, 30 volt uh, voltage bias which is very reasonable. Uh, we find that in nature. And the others were at zero volts. And we soon discovered that after 40 or 50 visits, individual visits by individual bees that we know, we marked, um, bees will tend to choose the, the flowers with the sugar 
with 80% accuracy. By presumably recognising that there's that field, so they must be sensitive to it. How do you think they're using that in nature, if, if at all? Mm, well, the, the experiment was telling them to, 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 to tell us that when we removed that field after the learning uh, experiment, we took the same bees that were then educated to find the sugar with, associated with the electrical charge. When we removed that, and to answer your question, when we removed actually that, uh, that field, bees were unable to find the flowers with sugar. So, so they had used that field to orient themselves. And how far away from a flower are they sensitive to it, do you think? Do you, do you think this is actually a useful thing for them in nature, to orientate themselves, locate food sources, and maybe also avoid visiting flowers more often than they should before That's the nectar's right. replenished? That's right. That's exactly that, is that we think that the bees can detect that at four or five centimetres or so from, say, a petunia flower. And the functionality of that, as you, as you suggest, is about uh, the nectar and the pollen. What flowers want to do is advertise themselves as much as they can to, to bees. They have nice scents, they have nice color, they have a texture, they have a symmetry. They look beautiful to us, but they look fantastic to bees, of course. Um, now, what we show is that when a bee visits a flower, and we could measure that with electrodes that we implanted into flowers, uh, the potential of the flower changes. And when a bee visits, that potential changes. And when a second bee comes along, and happens to land, for instance, that potential changes even more. So it would be in the interest, so to speak, of a bee to understand that perhaps that flower has been visited and it's depleted from nectar. Therefore, not uh, incur the risk of predation by spiders, but also lose, uh, lose time, waste time in, in a foraging um, bouts. Calling at a shop that's already been visited. That's right. Daniel, thank you very much. Fantastic story. Daniel Roberts is from Bristol University. Time now for this week's Planet Earth. 360 million years ago, the first four-legged creatures started moving from water onto land. But what did our very distant ancestors look like? Early studies suggested they resembled salamanders, but new research has found that these tetrapods were nothing like the pictures in textbooks. Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham spoke to Jenny Clack from University of Cambridge and Stephanie Pierce from the UK's Royal Veterinary College. He started by asking Jenny about the assumptions they were challenging. The first creatures to emerge from the water and start to evolve legs with fingers and toes, people assumed that these would have had legs with weight-bearing limbs and that they would have walked in the same way that modern four-limbed creatures walk, like a, a lizard, perhaps, or a salamander. And they envisaged these early tetrapods, as we call them, as giant salamander-like creatures. And that's how they were first reconstructed. So, Stephanie, what did you do? What did you do to these fossils to find out what they were really like? Well, over the last three or four years, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the fossils that are still embedded inside the rock, so fossils that we can't see on the outside. And to do this, we've been using modern technologies. We've been using micro-CT scanners. And when we looked at the vertebral column, the, the bones of the vertebrae that were still trapped inside the rock, we weren't able to identify all the different parts that were supposed to be there based on what had been described in the literature and in textbooks over about the last 100 years. And so this got us really, really puzzled. What was actually going on in the backbone of this animal? And what we decided to do was 
take it to the European synchrotron radiation facility and create really high-resolution images using synchrotron X-rays. And what we found was something very, very interesting. So you've got a representation of this. What you saw inside this fossil on the computer screen here in front of us, and it's a three-dimensional representation, and this wasn't what you were expecting. It's not quite what we were expecting. When you talk about a modern tetrapod backbone, their vertebrae are composed of individual units that are all interconnected, and those units are composed of only one bone. And an early tetrapod vertebral column is actually slightly different. It's actually composed of many different bones. And in particular, it's supposed to be, each unit is supposed to be composed of three separate bones. It's supposed to be composed of one bone on the front, which is called the intracentrum, and that's the green bone in the image here. Uh, One bone on the top, which is called the neural spine, and that's the pink bone in the image. And then a pair of little bones at the back called the pluricentra, which are the yellow bones in this image. But that sort of concept of what an early tetrapod vertebra looked like isn't actually what we found when we did the synchrotron scanning of this fossil. So what did you find? What, what was different about it? Well, some of the bones ended up being fused together. And in particular, the bone at the front, the intracentrum, was actually fused on to the back of the pluricentra. And this was very unusual because that indicated to us that the first bone in the series, the intracentrum, was actually, in fact, the last bone in the series. And this meant that all the literature and the textbook previously actually had the backbone back to front in these animals. What does this actually tell you about the animal, what it looked like and and maybe how it moved? One of the things that we, we found, you can see represented by a series of blue elements. And the nearest equivalent we can find in modern animals is the sternum, the breastbone. That corresponds to the idea that these creatures were not walking with alternating footprints, as you would expect, but actually were using a kind of crutching motion. So using their front legs to kind of hop forwards and then pushing or stabilising with the back legs, because the back legs were paddle-shaped. They weren't walking legs. They didn't have proper knees or ankles. They were stiff and probably were just sort of sitting there in in the mud, used for swimming in the water, but as stabilisers and and anchors on land. So based on this study, what do you now know that they look like? Its shoulders were relatively enormous, and it had this big rib cage, which then faded out into a rather weak bit of backbone just before where the hind legs fit in. And the hind legs were paddles, set sort of vertically against the body and the little short stubby tail. Big head, big shoulders, rather diminutive hindquarters. Jenny Clack and Stephanie Pierce talking to Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham. And you can see pictures of the creature at Planet Earth online. Follow the link on our website at thenakedscientists.com slash planet earth. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Ginny Smith. And if you'd like to catch up with any of our previous programmes, you can do so as podcasts from our website. That's at nakedscientists.com slash podcasts. This week, we have our ears to the ground to discover all about animal super senses. Hearing is one sense which is incredibly useful for nocturnal animals. For example, a tawny owl can pinpoint the direction in which a mouse is scurrying within 0.01 seconds. But... What about those animals who live underground? 
We're joined by Dr Matthew Mason from Cambridge University, whose work as a physiologist looks at the middle ear bones of subterranean mammals. So can you tell me how the middle ear bones work in humans? Yes, OK. So there's three parts to your ear. The outer ear is the bit that you can see. You've got the ear flap and the ear canal. And if you were to go down your ear canal, at the bottom of it, you'd find your eardrum, which is a very thin membrane. And the idea is that when sound comes in down your ear, that membrane will vibrate. Now, on the other side of the membrane is the middle ear cavity. And that's an airfield space, one in each of your ears, in the middle of your head. And sound has somehow got to cross that air-filled cavity from the eardrum into the last part of the ear, which we call the inner ear. And within the inner ear, we've got the hair cells, and these are specialised cells with little hair-like processes. When the fluid inside the inner ear vibrates, then the hair cells will turn that into electrical signals that the brain can understand. So the bones that I look at are bridging the gap, if you like, between the eardrum and the fluid-filled inner ear. Three little bones which have to conduct the vibrations. And why do we need them? Well, the problem is that your inner ear is filled with fluid. And this evolved in vertebrates a long time ago, perhaps in aquatic vertebrates. And if you're aquatic, there's no real problem, because sound is travelling in water, it can go straight into the fluid-filled inner ear, it can vibrate the hair cells, and you can hear it. But when tetrapods moved onto land then suddenly sound was reaching them through the air. And the problem there is that if sound comes in through the air and it hits fluid, like the fluid in your inner ear, most of the energy, 99% or so, will be reflected straight back off. And you can get an idea of that effect if you're in the bath, if your head's underwater, someone tries to talk to you, it's very difficult to hear what they're saying because most of that energy has simply bounced back. So the middle ear device that we have, the eardrum and the three little bones... The purpose is to help to translate more of that energy from the air into the inner ear so we can actually hear it. And it's what physicists call impedance matching. But it means that much more of the energy actually gets through. It gives us a better chance to hear sound that's coming to us through the air. OK, so that's how it works in humans. What's different for animals that live underground? Well, the problem if you live in a tunnel underground is what kind of sound you're going to be receiving. And people have done studies where they've played sounds in tunnels underground, and it tends to be low frequencies that travel best. But even low frequencies don't travel very far. They only travel a few metres before they tend to be, the energy tends to be absorbed by the tunnel walls. So sound really doesn't propagate very well. And then, to make matters worse, many subterranean mammals are solitary, they live on their own in their own tunnel system, the next neighbour is going to be in a completely separate system, uh, and then how would you communicate between yourself and your neighbour? So two problems, sound doesn't travel very far and the tunnel systems may not be connected. So hearing perhaps is not terribly useful to you. But ground vibrations might be a better thing to detect. Because if you can produce vibrations in the soil, or if something is producing vibrations in the soil, they can travel between the burrow networks, and they seem to travel better, they can travel further. So how have their ears changed in order to pick up these vibrations? Well, it depends on the group, but one of the groups that I'm interested in is called the golden moles, uh, and these live in Africa. And these little guys are interested in vibrations that might be made by prey species, for example. Now... What they've done with their ears is, in essence, they've turned them into little seismometers. 
So the middle ear bones in us, in, in humans and in mammals in general, are usually very, very tiny, and they need to be tiny in order to transmit sound vibrations effectively. But in the golden moles, these bones have become very, very large in some of the species. And so we've got these disproportionately massive ear bones. Now, to put this in context, uh, the Namib Desert golden mole that I look at is about the size of a mouse. But its ear bone is twice the size of a human's. Now, that perhaps doesn't sound too impressive, but if you imagine uh, the mole blown up to the size of us, it would be like us having a solid lump of bone the size of your fist in each of your ears. Wow, that doesn't sound very comfortable. It isn't, but it might be useful for detecting vibration. So the idea is that if your head happened to be touching the ground and the ground was vibrating, then your whole head would tend to move. But these great lumps of bone would tend to stay in one place. And that would give you some relative movement, and then that could go to the hair cells, the hair cells could pick up those vibrations, and suddenly you've got an ear that can detect ground vibrations. You've got a seismometer. So does that mean that these moles have to literally bury their heads in the sand in order to detect vibrations? They absolutely do, yes. So the Namib Desert moles have two ways of getting around. They can burrow through sand, but the problem with sand is you can't actually make a burrow system because it just collapses behind you. So if you're burrowing underground, you've always got your head in contact with the sand. And in fact, they use their head for burrowing anyway, so it's always in contact. But sometimes these little guys like to run around on the surface which is perhaps less energetically costly, they can go further, it's easier to do it. But if they run around on the surface, they've got this problem that they're not touching the ground. But what they do every, every couple of feet is they stop, they actually push their heads into the sand and listen. And, and how far can they hear, just quickly? Well, we don't know that, but we do know that they seem to be able to locate grassy tussocks where, they, where their prey lives at distances of up to about 20 metres. At least they seem to know where the tussock is and they head towards it. Brilliant. Well, that sounds fascinating, but I can't imagine walking around with two fist-sized lumps of bone in my head. I think <laughs> I'll stick to our version of hearing. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> now, you've probably heard that the, there's a well-reported idea that a shark can smell one drop of blood from a quarter of a mile away. Well, to find out whether this is true and how sharks actually sniff out their prey more generally, we're joined by Dr Jonathan Cox, who is from Bath University, and he's taken a slightly unusual approach to investigating these questions. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, Chris. So tell us about your work then. You, you actually started with a shark in a tank, but it wasn't a live one. That's right. It was a plastic shark, uh, or rather a shark's head, that we'd uh, made a model of as a result of getting putting the, um, a real shark's head in a, from, a, from the National Natural History Museum into a CT scanner and uh, getting the scan data and turning it into a, a plastic model, which we then stuck into a tank uh, in an engineering department. So you take the, the real shark, scan it to get very high-resolution ultrastructure of what makes up that head, all of the, the passages. You can't say bone because obviously isn't, they're not bony fish, are they? But So you can see basically the structure and then you make a model so that you can then do experiments on the model. That's right, yeah. And uh, we made, a, as I said, a plastic model, but some of it was, most of it was uh, opaque and a little section of it which comprised the nasal region, uh, was transparent so we could see into it. 
And this means that then you can begin to ask questions very consistently, uh, like uh, how does water flow around this when it's moving along, how does water flow along the nasal passages and all that kind of thing, I presume. That's right, yeah. So in order to do that, we used coloured dye red. It's very appropriate. Yeah. Jaws and so on. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so we used uh, tiny filaments of red dye and fired them at the transparent nasal region and looked to see what happened. So you didn't make the head move, you made the water move because obviously it's the same thing, the, the water's going to flow the same way whether the head is moving or the, the water's moving and then you're tracing where those filaments of dye go. That's right, it's much easier to make the water move. Getting the head to move is uh, pretty difficult, although it was a hammerhead shark and um, the head uh, of a hammerhead shark uh, wobbles from side to side so the hammerhead sweeps it, its head from side to side so it would be nice actually to uh, mimic that motion and uh, that's a sort of a future experiment. So hammerheads have their eyes on the ends of the hammers. Do they also have their nostrils there then too? Yeah, right on the front edge, uh, sort of in the face of the action, uh, as it were. So the eyes are on the sides and uh, the nasal region is uh, right on the front edge of the head. So what happens then when, the, in your case, the dye, but, but say this were... Uh, a shark out in the open ocean and there was some chemical in the water that it was sniffing down, uh, blood of a, uh, a prey item, for example. What's actually the process? Several things happen. First of all, um, water enters the nasal passages and gets distributed over the uh, large sensory surface area that's got packed into its uh, nasal chambers and uh, as a result of getting passed over the sensory surface gets sensed but uh, also, weirdly, quite a lot of the water or flow actually passes over the head. And we think that uh, this actually helps, paradoxically, flow to go through the nasal chamber. So it helps uh, the flow through the nasal chamber. What about the fact that those nostrils are so far apart? Mm-hmm. How, how does the shark exploit that? I mean, it must have evolved that way for a very good reason. And this presumably does give it an enormous advantage of sniffing down concentration differences? Yes, well, it's thought that the further apart your two noses are or two nostrils are, then the easier it is to locate the source of a scent. So, yeah, that's that's what it's, it seems to be, but um, it's not been proven. So, going back to where we started, which was that people say sharks have this extraordinary ability to track down prey over enormous distances, do your experiments bear that out? can't say... That's a physiological experiment, which uh, we were not able to to do working with a <laughs> plastic model. But um, what we were able to do was to show how the flow, in other words, the, the water carrying the scent is distributed over the sensory surface area within the, the nose. So once it actually goes up the nose, what happens then? Because... There's some quite interesting studies done on humans showing that we close off one nostril at one time and have a relatively open nostril, and this changes the rate at which the fluid, air in our case, it'll be water in the shark, obviously flows over the the surface that detects things because some things are more quickly detected by the respiratory, the, the ciliated surface that does the detecting. So the more water or the more fluid that can go up there and the more odorant, the more you're going to smell while other chemicals take longer to dock onto the things that smell them. So slowing down the flow a bit is beneficial. Do you see the same thing in these sharks? Possibly. With the hammerhead, because it sweeps its head from side to side, on 
one swoop of the head, it's going to encounter odiferous water, in other words, water that's got the odorant molecules in, and the other side, the other uh, nose, as it were, is going to be kind of blocked, to use your terminology, because it's not going to be in the scent, but then it will come back again. So, And also, by shaking the head from side to side, it's possible that uh, there's a little bit of agitation of the water inside the, the nasal cavities and a kind of asymmetric uh, mixing of that water. But yeah, again, that's uh, none of that's uh, proven, but that's to, something to be looked at. Something to do another day, perhaps. Mm. Jonathan Cox from Bath University, thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Ginny Smith. Earlier in the show, we heard how bees can detect the electric fields of flowers. But that's not the only research which hopes to investigate how bees see the world. Recent studies have also shown that they can recognise iridescence. Now, this is the rainbow pattern that you see on the shiny side of a CD. And some plants use iridescence to give them their colour too. And naked scientist Kate Lamble headed over to Cambridge University's Bee Laboratory to speak to PhD student Alison Reid. I'm particularly interested in looking at flower colour and the texture of a flower surface to see how bees and insect pollinators interact with that surface. Why do you think your research is important? How can it help us understand the natural world? Well, because pollination and insect behaviour is so important, it's all around us and it affects a lot, a lot of the things that we value, including food production, that just a general understanding of how this process works is really valuable and it might feed onto other projects which might be able to benefit crop production and food production in the future. So how do bees see the world? Is it particularly different from what we see as humans? Well, the colour spectrum that they see is very different to us. So they can see UV wavelengths, which we can't see, and their colours that they see are quite different to what we see. And so we need to look at things from a bee's point of view and do experiments to see if they can see colours that we can see, basically. So we're looking at iridescence in flowers, because even though we can see it, bees may not be able to see it. So that's why we need to test it. When I think of iridescence, I think of really shiny things like beetles or butterflies, but I don't necessarily think of flowers. Can you tell us a little bit more about how it works in plants? It's very similar. Uh, A lot of the structures that animals use are also used by plants, but it wasn't really studied until very recently, and that's why our lab is really interested in it. For example, we're mainly looking at flowers which have diffraction grating, so they have grooves of their folding of the cuticle on the petals, and that produces a diffraction grating which makes iridescence. And that does happen in animals, but mostly animals use multi-layers. But petals predominantly use diffraction gratings. It's fairly unique to flowers. We haven't found any flowers which have multi-layers on their petals. If you want to test whether a bee can see these tiny folds on a flower, how do you go about testing that? Well, the folds on a flower are very similar to the the folds that you find on a CD. So when you rotate a CD, you'll see the the different colours and the iridescence. And that's exactly the same structure that we see on a flower. So sometimes to begin with, we wanted to see if they could see that CD iridescence because it's a perfect grating, so um, it produces a perfect iridescence. So we first of all did tests to see if they could see that, um, and they could. And so then we followed that up by doing some experiments with flowers which had similar structures but not quite so perfect. And they could also see, see those diffraction gratings and that iridescent effect. Are there any particular flowers that you use that are particularly iridescent? One of the first ones that we discovered was tulip flowers, which have quite a good iridescent surface, and you can see that's why, one of the reasons why they're so shiny when you look at the surface of a tulip. And we've used those for most of our experiments because that's what's been used in the past. But over time, we're gradually finding more and more flowers that have got even better diffraction gratings and even better iridescence, so hopefully we'll test some of those in the future. If you're testing to see if a bee can see that iridescent effect, how do you physically go about it? Do you just 
show a bee a flower and see what happens? Well, we can't really use real flowers because um, there are so many other things to consider, like scent. So we make artificial flowers in the lab out of plastic and we do a differential conditioning experiment where you have two different flowers, one is iridescent and one isn't. And then with the non-iridescent flower, you provide a punishment, which is a bitter quinine solution. And with the iridescent one, you provide a reward, which is a sugary sucrose solution. And if they can tell the difference between the two, they should learn not to go to the quinine and the, and the horrible the tasting flowers, but to go to the iridescent ones. Could you show me a couple of those artificial flowers that you've got? Yeah, of course. Yeah. This is one made from a CD. So you have an impression of the CD into dental wax, um, which makes a mould, basically, a really fine structure mould. And then you can make a, a plastic replica of the surface using resin. So it sort of looks like a small plastic coin with a hole in the middle. Mm, it's like a, basically like a mini- miniature CD with a pigment in the plastic resin. And why is there a hole in the middle? What's that used for? That's used for putting a, a sucrose reward so the, the bees can feed from the, the middle. So it's basically replicating the structure of a, of a flower. It doesn't look particularly like a flower. I mean, if it was me, I'd make them to look like pretty petals. The most important thing for us is that they're all the same, so that they're comparable. I guess we could make them look like petals, but these bees have never seen real flowers before, so it wouldn't make much difference, I don't think. If you've made that one from a CD, how would you go and make one from a flower? OK, it's very similar. You have to make sure that the petal that you're casting is very flat. And you do the same thing, basically. So you go into the gardens and you find a flower that you're interested in testing and you, you make, make up the wax and then you press the petal into the wax and it dries within 10 minutes and then you've got your cast, your mould for making your discs. So what have you found out? Is there a difference between the CD ones that you've been using and the tulips? It's very similar for CDs and for flowers, but bees move faster between the iridescent discs than they do between the non-iridescent ones. So when you're using flower casts made from flowers with, with flat cells, that produces a very different result to flowers that have um, this diffraction grating on their surface. So do you think that flowers have evolved these tiny structures in order to attract insects like bees? Sort of co-evolved, I would have thought. Insect vision and flower colours sort of co-evolved. But yes, I mean, it's important for the flower that it's unique in its environment so that it gets pollinated, because obviously it wants pollen from its own species to be transferred to another flower of the same species. So it's really important that these flowers are unique and unusual. And that's one of, these, one of the reasons probably why this is so, so helpful for flowers, because it, it makes them unique. Has there anything come up that you haven't expected? Um, how temperamental the bees are, I think. <laughs> you don't realise how, how much they're affected by the weather and by the conditions that you keep them in and just what they feel like on a day-to-day basis, I guess. So um, sometimes you'll get bees that come and start an experiment and then, then they'll come, go back to the colony and they won't appear for another few days and your experiment's been ruined, so you have to start from the beginning again. But I guess that's all part of working with animals. <laughs> the life of a PhD student, Alison Reid, who will be soon be completing her PhD in the Department of Plant Sciences at the University of Cambridge. And now, to finish off this week, Hannah Critchlow has been poking her nose into a whiffy question of the week. This week, we wonder the super senses of flies. Desiree from Johannesburg, South Africa, wrote in with this. Apparently, a fly can smell meat from seven kilometres away. Is this true? Thanks. So, do flies have a super smell senses of specifically seven kilometres? And if so, how and what experimentation has told us this? Hi, I'm Marcus Stansmeyer from the Max Planck Institute for Chemical Ecology in Germany. Yes, it's true. A fly could smell meat over that distance, although only under very, very favourable conditions. 
Mark release recapture experiments performed with houseflies caught at a poultry farm showed that flies could find their way back to the farm from a distance of up to 7 kilometers. To get this data, the scientists had to tag and release 160,000 flies, of which only 0.05% was recaptured. So, flies can do it, but far from all will manage this feat. 7 kilometers is not only a considerable distance to smell something. For a tiny fly, simply traveling 7 kilometers is a major effort, taking several days. Even so, flies are able to detect the smell of rotting meat over long distances. The exact distance depends on many factors, such as wind condition, size of the meat, and landscape features. For flies to smell something 7 kilometers away, it nevertheless has to be a substantial piece of meat, like a herd of dead elephants rotting away in the sun, or an entire poultry farm. How do flies manage this? Well, it involves no magic, simply a very good sense of smell. Flies, like all other insects, detect odors with their antennae, which are densely covered in hair-like structures containing olfactory sensory nerve cells. These nerve cells are extremely sensitive to volatile chemicals, odors that is, and in the case of flies that feed on dead and decaying flesh, so-called carrion flies, their olfactory cells are also optimized towards detecting cadaver odors. So carrion flies have specialised nerve cells on their antennae that are highly sensitive. The airborne odour chemicals given off by rotting meat activates these cells signalling to the fly that food is around. And catch and release experiments have shown that flies can detect these odours from over seven kilometres away and then they can travel over many days honing in for their feast. That's determination for food. Next up, we question the effects of Earth's population. Ian from South Wales wrote in with this. Hi, I'm uh, curious about the amount of water on our planet. If we and all the other animals consist mostly of water, does this mean that as the human population increases, the amount of water on the planet has to decrease to compensate? Thanks. So, does Earth have a finite amount of water? And if so, since humans are made up mostly of wet stuff... Will the increasing human population numbers significantly reduce Earth's water supply? What do you think about that one? You can post on our Naked Scientists Facebook page. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Or you can join in the live debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Hannah Critchlow. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to our guests, Daniel Roberts, Matt Mason and Jonathan Cox. And, of course, our news panel, who were Daniel Weston and Bibiana Camposejo. Thank you also to Ginny Smith for joining us this week. The production was by Ben Valsler and Kate Lamble. Next time, we'll be getting chilly because we'll be going down to the British Antarctic Survey's new base they're building in Antarctica to find out all about the challenges of doing research in very cold places. How do you build a building that can accommodate those sorts of temperatures? And we'll also join someone in the Arctic for a bit of chilly underground research. If you'd like to send us your thoughts, comments or feedback, you can write to me. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also find us on Facebook or tweet at Naked Scientists. You can catch up on any of our previous programmes by going to our podcast page, nakedscientist.com slash podcasts. The Naked Scientist is sponsored by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. It comes to you from Cambridge University. This is RN and I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. 
the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.